Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, a real podcast about fake crimes. Every week, I'll tell you about one of my favorite books, but like it's true crime. This podcast isn't spoiler-free, so listen at your own risk. Kelly Walsh did not seem like the kind of person who would be the target for a murder. And not just because she was a struggling single mother who worked hard to provide for her son and herself while seeming to otherwise keep to herself. We all know people have more depth than what we can glimpse from the surface. But Kelly Walsh was already dying. Weeks before her murder, Kelly had already been preparing her son for a life without her, clarifying her last wishes with her brother and sister-in-law, getting her affairs in order, and ensuring that her son would be well taken care of when she was no longer there. Kelly had been diagnosed with cancer, and it was at such an advanced stage there was no longer any hope that she would ever be in remission. At most, Kelly had three months left to live. Not a lot of time when you're staring down years, but an eternity when it's all you have left and Kelly plans to spend every second she could with the people she loved. And when life took her to the town of Miracle Springs, she even hoped she'd be able to cross some regrets off her list and make amends with a woman she'd hurt. But things didn't go as Kelly planned, and her son was robbed of his mother early. I'm Risa P, and this is the murder of Kelly Walsh. Miracle Springs is the kind of small town you'd expect to see as a featured setting in a made-for-Hallmark Channel kind of movie. It's quaint, picturesque, and every citizen of Miracle Springs seems to have the kind of backstory that would make a compelling, cozy mystery. The town has festivals every month of the year, from families to bees and honey to Christmas and winter holidays. And these festivals, along with the town's overall charm, do a lot to keep the tourists and the tourist dollars flowing into Miracle Springs. Tourists help keep the boutique stores open, from books to candles to custom bakeries to flowers and hand-mixed loose-leaf tea. But not everyone in a small town can own or work at a small, independently-owned store. Because while these places might be bursting with the kind of local charm that looks great on Instagram, even a successful small business is rarely able to employ more than one or two people if the proprietor is able to afford employees at all. And that's why there's been so much dissension in Miracle Springs about the idea of a major developer coming in to build a resort casino. A resort casino would be a massive boon to a town like Miracle Springs, especially the kind that caters to long-term high-end clientele with swimming pools, day spas, luxury hotel rooms, and an abundance of on-site restaurants, coffee shops, shopping, and entertainment to supplement the casino itself. An endeavor like this would mean jobs for the people of Miracle Springs 
who don't have the startup capital to run a shop for the tourists or work at the lodge, a staple of the tourist trade that frequently bust resort tourists to downtown for daily shopping excursions. And when the casino deal begins to get tricky is when you find out the land developers are eyeing belong to one of the indigenous American tribes that has a reservation near Maple Springs. And while the casino the tribe is proposing wouldn't be as big or offer as much employment as the one on spec from the developers, it would return profits to the community, allowing members of the indigenous community to receive money, as well as boosting funds to local libraries, school districts, things the tribe has already been doing with the proceeds of another casino in a nearby town. So it's not hard to see why the issue of a casino in Miracle Springs has been tying up county open forums and town halls for months now. But it's harder to see what this question about who should get rights to build a casino has to do with the murder of a terminally ill single mother. And while the killers of Kelly Walsh are still at large, police do believe they've been able to build a clearer picture as to why she would have been the target of a murder. But before we get into the why, I think it's important we get an idea of the who. Who was Kelly Walsh? She came from a modest background and was currently living with her boyfriend and sister-in-law, Valerie and Kirk Walsh, who were also new to the Miracle Springs area. Kelly was starting to need more and more help as her cancer progressed, and as Valerie and Kirk would be the ones watching her young son Tucker after her death, Kelly felt it made sense for the four of them to live together. It meant Tucker would get to know his aunt and uncle while his mother was still alive to help him through the transition. And he wouldn't have the trauma of having to move to a new home in addition to the unavoidable trauma of his mother's passing. And while Tucker is a sweet kid, he does have Asperger's, which means that even small changes can be upsetting to him. And while Kelly has the instinct of a mother to get her through some of Tucker's more upsetting meltdowns and challenging situations, she isn't always going to be there, and she needs to work with Valerie and Kirk directly to help them be the best advocates for Tucker when she's gone. And Tucker needs to see them as people he can trust, even when his mom isn't there. Valerie and Kirk have a passion for tea and flowers, and moving to Miracle Springs gives them the chance to open up their small business, a flower shop tea room hybrid, where they can feature bouquets of gorgeous flowers with an emphasis on Victorian flower language, a particular passion for Kirk, and hand-blended teas, a particular passion of Valerie's. But Tucker and the flowers and tea shop aren't a great mix. He has a high sensitivity to smells, and the florists and tea room are filled with strong scents. So Tucker tries to avoid his aunt and uncle's shop, choosing instead to spend time at the local bookstore run by Miracle Springs local Nora Penning. Nora, Tucker, and Kelly hit it off immediately after their first visit. Tucker loves books and has recently gotten into origami. Nora is able to set him up with a selection of origami books and the two really take to each other. But both Kelly and Nora have a secret. Nora Pennington hasn't always gone by the name Nora Pennington, and she hasn't always lived in Miracle Springs. And she's met Kelly before. Because before Kelly was a single mom looking out for her kid, she was a beautiful young woman 
who caught the eye of a generous, rich, and handsome older man. An older man that happened to be Nora's husband. Nora isn't able to immediately make the connection between the Kelly that comes into her bookshop and the young woman she discovered with her husband, a young woman whose pregnancy was a key factor in the ending of her marriage. But Kelly does, and Kelly sees this as an opportunity to make amends for the affair, one of her greatest regrets, before she dies. Nora and Kelly's former husband, Lawrence, was the kind of man who makes a good first impression, but sours with age. While he was rich through a series of successful business ventures, everything from investments to real estate to cryptocurrency, and charming, he wasn't a kind person, and the larger his fortune grew, the quicker he went through women. While he did marry Kelly after his divorce from Nora, and several women after her, Lawrence didn't want anything to do with his children. He paid child support, but never made an effort to visit Tucker. And Kelly was grateful her brother wouldn't have to fight him for custody after her death. Lawrence simply isn't interested. And knowing what she now knows about Lawrence, Kelly is also painfully aware that all the lies he told her about his marriage to Nora when they were having an affair really were lies, and she's never forgiven herself for the hurt she caused the other woman. But when Kelly approaches Nora in the parking lot of local diner The Pink Lady, Nora doesn't want to hear anything she has to say. She isn't still mad about the affair, but she's moved to Miracle Springs for a fresh start. She doesn't want to dig at old wounds, she just wants Kelly to leave her alone. And when Kelly won't do that, Nora pushes her away. Not hard enough for the woman to fall, but hard enough that several patrons notice it and comment on Nora's crassness to push a terminally ill cancer patient. As an isolated event, people can definitely see Nora's side here. Trauma doesn't just go away because someone is sick. But this incident wouldn't just be an isolated event. Because just hours later, Kelly Walsh would be murdered. The early investigation into Kelly Walsh's murder goes off on what turns out to be a red herring, focusing the bulk of the investigation onto Nora Pennington, for obvious reasons. Nora was seen fighting with Kelly just hours before her murder. She had a potential motive for wanting Kelly dead. And even if Nora claimed she'd moved past her husband's infidelity. And she had no confirmable alibi for the time of Kelly's death. According to police, Nora claimed she went home immediately after her encounter with Kelly and had a glass of wine before going to bed and sleeping through her morning alarm, not waking up until 10 a.m. the next day. But because Nora lived alone, there was no one to confirm her alibi. And Valerie Walsh, who has taken an early and strong dislike to Nora, swears that she saw Nora talking to Kelly hours later, around midnight, right before Kelly left the house for the last time. And Kelly did have a late night visitor. Valerie and Kirk saw her talking with someone right where their property line met the woods behind their house. A woman with curly brown hair, shoulder length, similar to Nora's, holding what appeared to be a motorcycle helmet. Also similar to Nora's, as Nora rode everywhere on a scooter and didn't own a car. 
While Kelly claimed this was just someone looking for a lost cat and denied it was Nora to Valerie, Kelly does end up leaving her brother's house even later that night and isn't seen again until her body is found. So it's easy to see why police would have narrowed their investigation down to Nora Pennington, even more so with Valerie's testimony about the possibly Nora's late night visit. But there are still some things that don't quite fit if Nora is the killer. According to the Emmy's report, Kelly died of asphyxiation. She was put into a sleeper hold from behind and her killer continued to apply pressure until she suffocated. While Kelly had been made weak from rounds of chemo and the cancer that was steadily destroying her body, this kind of sleeper hold would still have taken a considerable amount of strength. While it isn't impossible for Nora to have done it, Nora isn't exceptionally strong, and if Kelly had been fighting for her life, she would have been able to put up a fight. But Kelly's body doesn't show signs of a struggle. It appears that she was totally incapacitated by her killer and unable to fight back. There are no traces of DNA or fingerprints on her body, and no other physical signs of a struggle, which leads investigators to believe she was both taken off guard and completely overpowered by her attacker. And Nora doesn't show any physical signs of having been in a struggle either. She has no unexplained bruises or scratch marks around her face, neck, or arms, nothing to suggest that she's been in any kind of altercation. And while Valerie's witness testimony puts suspicion on her alibi, it doesn't put Nora at the scene of the crime either. Even if the mystery woman Kelly was seen talking to in the backyard isn't Nora. Kelly was still alive hours after this meeting, and she chose to leave the house and go walking alone at night. Unfortunately for investigators, this means there really isn't much to go on for their investigation. And unfortunately for Nora, that means she remains their only suspect. But Nora is well-loved in Miracle Springs, and her friends aren't willing to just let her take the fall because there's no more compelling suspect to take her place. Her friends set her up with local knitting circle legend and Miracle Springs famous lawyer Davis Godwin, and he makes sure Nora doesn't spend any time in jail for allegations that amount to nothing more than a she said, she said situation. Meanwhile, Tucker Walsh is struggling with his mother's death, and the only place in Miracle Springs he feels safe is Nora's bookshop. So while Nora isn't supposed to have any contact with the Walsh family, Tucker makes that impossible. And while trying to help Kirk get his nephew back home after he's run away from the tea shop, Nora discovers that Kelly Walsh had been keeping a collection of antique books to be sold after her death to help set Tucker up for college. While Lawrence wanted nothing to do with his son, his mother, known as Grandma Love, very much wanted something to do with her grandson, and she made sure that Tucker received a considerable inheritance from her after her death. But Lawrence Love wasn't above scamming his own mother, and he made sure that even his brother was denied a cash inheritance. But while the two grown men were contesting the will, it went unnoticed that Tucker and Kelly were inheriting Grandma Love's book collection. And this collection isn't just an attic filled with musty paperbacks. Grandma Love was a serious collector, with some of her books being able to easily bring in five-figure prices if they are placed by the right agent at the right auction house. 
and Nora, as the bookselling expert, can tell just by the inventory list Kirk gives her that Tucker could be well taken care of off the profits from these books. But then the Walshes are robbed just days after asking Nora for her help in pricing their collection. And another dead body turns up. Another young woman with a connection to Nora Pennington. This young woman is found in her car by a trucker who stopped off for an early morning breakfast and noticed something strange about the woman behind the driver's seat. He calls Miracle Springs police, and it's quickly determined that this young woman named Jessica has been killed in the same way as Kelly Walsh, sleeper hold asphyxiation. Luckily for Nora, who's starting to look more and more guilty for a slew of crimes, there's video footage in this parking lot. And while the quality isn't great, police can see the grainy black and white images of a couple, a man and a woman, confronting Justine in her car. The woman has stiff blonde hair, and even from the poor quality security footage, police can tell it's a wig. And the man has what appears to be a tattoo on his neck, although the video is too far away for police to tell what it is. And while this isn't much to go on, it's enough to push Nora off the list of top suspects, as it becomes clear Kelly was killed by the same people who killed Justine. So what do an out-of-towner and a single mother with cancer have in common? Lawrence Love. But while Kelly Walsh and Nora Pennington might have had the misfortune of calling themselves Lawrence's ex-wives, Justine doesn't. Because by the time Lawrence started dating her, he'd determined he had no interest in ever getting married again. No more prenups, no more divorces. He would show his girlfriends a good time until times stopped being good. And Justine was nearing the end of her shelf life. But Lawrence hadn't arrived in Miracle Springs when Kelly Walsh was murdered. So if the women's only connection is Lawrence, but he couldn't have been the killer, how did both women end up dead? Well, it turns out it has everything to do with a treasure map. One of the antique books Grandma Love left to her favorite grandson was Treasure Island. But this book wasn't worth a fortune because it was a first printing, because it was signed, or because it contained hand-painted and detailed maps. In fact, the interior of the book had been removed completely and rebound inside, were a collection of legal documents where Grandma Love deeded a large, lucrative piece of land right outside Miracle Springs to her grandson Tucker. A piece of land that just so happened to be rich in copper, enough that leasing the land to a mining company would be enough to give Tucker a modest but livable income for the rest of his life. It also just so happened to be the land that was in the perfect location for a resort-style casino. One of Lawrence's real estate shell companies had been scouting the area around Miracle Springs for years, and all that was standing between Lawrence and a new source of millions in income was a casino permit and a land deed. But while Lawrence had done an excellent job of fleecing every other love out of their mother's inheritance, She'd managed to hide the land deed for Tucker well enough that Lawrence couldn't claim it for himself. A fact he hadn't been counting on when he went ahead and started to spend money lobbying for his permit. And Justine, 
knowing that her time as Lawrence Love's side piece was coming to an end, thought getting that deed was her ticket to a ring. But Justine wasn't the kind of woman to get her hands dirty, so she made a deal with two recently released felons to get it for her. Colton Fieri and his partner Dana agreed to try and steal the deed for Justine, but Kelly refuses to be intimidated. And then Justine refuses to pay up because they can't secure the deed. Colton Fieri is apprehended trying to break into the Walsh's home a second time, but his partner Dana is still at large. Anyone who sees a woman matching her description, most likely riding a motorcycle, is encouraged to reach out to Miracle Springs Police. And while the official investigations into the deaths of Kelly Walsh and Justine are currently closed, not everyone is convinced it was really Justine who was the mastermind behind this attempt to steal land out from under a child. Lawrence Love, while unscathed in the murders of his ex-wife and girlfriend and attempted theft of a land deed belonging to his son, is also too smart to have had something like this going on under his nose and not know about it. Miracle Springs police are also interested in anyone who may have information regarding Lawrence's involvement in the planning of this crime. Thank you for listening to Reader, I Murdered Him. Today's episode was based on the book Paper Cuts by Ellery Adams. This is the sixth book in the Secret Book and Scone Society cozy mystery series, but it was the first book in the series that I've read, and I can assure you that it stands on its own pretty well. You might not get all the inside jokes and character quirks, but I really didn't feel like I was missing out on much not having read the previous books in the series. Although I did love the characters and Miracle Springs enough that I do think I'm going back to start this series from the beginning. Unlike a lot of cozy mysteries, Adams writes characters that have some meat to their backstories. They're not all perfect and flawless young women who find themselves thrown into a murder investigation. And I really liked that about this book. As far as the mystery elements, Adams did a great job of making sure every thread she introduced at the beginning of the book made its way back into the larger mystery, so things were solved in a way that felt satisfactory and not overly trite. If you've read it and want to talk about it, come join the good or grab discussion questions for your own real-world book clubs. You can keep in touch between episodes by emailing me at readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com or by following me on Instagram at the Stay at Home Creative. All those links can be found below in the show notes. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him.
Salvis, Mr. Lee.